This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and uh, joining me is uh, a guest that I've been really pursuing to be on the show um is uh, i mean apart from being editor at large at rogerebert.com and uh, apart from uh you know being a pulitzer prize winning nominee uh for a finalist uh, for criticism and apart from being the author of Mad Men carousel and tv the book and oliver's own experience and as you're probably listening to this now it's already been published the soprano sessions and a writer for new york magazine and vulture um he's also just one of my favorite um, critics that is alive today and working and his stuff even when it's about samurai jack is profound and amazing <laughs> um the man that i've got joining me today is the awesome and unbelievable and great matt zolazites matt welcome to one heat minute wow with an introduction like that i'm gonna have to pretend i'm smart <laughs> Well, okay. look, look, Matt, thank you so much for being a part of the show. When I talked to Matt quite some time ago about being on the show, um, he, he said, look, there's one minute I would love to talk. He said, first, he was like very nice to say, like, this is a great idea. And I would love to be on to speak specifically about the tunnel scene. And since Matt said that, this is how long ago it goes back. It goes back, you know, we're recording. Years. It, it, we, we, we recorded in this in like December of 2018. And I reckon it was like halfway through 2017 matt said that and since then that minute i thought oh okay that's a great minute you know i'm an aficionado of this movie i know the importance it's a very memorable moment for me and i was looking forward to talking to it so i couldn't wait to talk to matt about it there's been no less than seven people who've asked to do that minute and it's just so funny that i uh, for some folk i've gone look i'm sorry that's taken like I've I've got that booked in for Matt. Like we've we've already got that locked away. But it's so funny that this specific minute that we're talking about, the hundred and forty seventh minute, where Neil McCauley, played by Robert De Niro, Amy Brenneman um, uh, as Edie, are in a car driving through LA, and they should be heading to the airport. The amazing John Voight is on screen, and he's giving Neil the final bit of information where Wayne Grow posing as a guy named Jameson is staying just to give him the information, but this should just be a fleeting. I'm going to give it to you, but it's nothing. You're, you're home free. And in fact, Neil even repeats your home free and they go through this tunnel and it's this transformative experience uh, that happens in this tunnel. And so many people want to talk about it and I've been studying it leading up to our chat. And I'm just like, it is, it is one of the most profound moments of the film. And I was really lucky to talk to the amazing Dante Spinotti, about this, even this moment, he mentioned it in the hundredth episode of uh, One Heat Minute. Yeah, he said that it, the the lighting, which we're going to probably unpack as part of the mood and a part of the sensation of the scene, he was like, it was a happy accident. Some of the transformative lighting because they couldn't adjust for the tunnel lighting. <laughs> And Michael Mann was actually angry after the first take, like, Dante, didn't you adjust the lighting? He's like, I can't change the light in the tunnel, Michael. I can only that's, change- a, that's a very Michael Mann thing to complain about. Too. <laughs> so, can we lower the sun a bit? 
<laughs> that is that is the exact thing that I thought I was like, oh my god, that is so perfect. Please change the lighting in the city. It's too bright for this scene. Look, so we're gonna we're gonna watch this minute together, as we always do, is as is the discipline of this show. We're gonna watch the minute together. Matt and I, and then we're going to come back and unpack the whole minute together. So you guys can listen along, and we're going to watch right now. Guy you wanted checked into the hotel marquee under Jameson, if you still give a shit. Which I figured you wouldn't. You figured right. So, so long, brother. You take it easy. You're home free. Take it easy. I love movies where re- dialogue gets repeated. Maybe it's my obsession with uh, The Big Lebowski as well, where you know the, the whole movie essentially is Jeff Bridges repeating other people's lines back to different people in the script. And so I really just adore this moment so much because it just shows to the inner turmoil of Neil that he's like just repeating the lines that John Voight's Nate is giving him, this wisdom as he's imparting. He's like, yes, yes. take it easy, home free. Yeah. What and then great... you see his face, you see him thinking. Yes. He just you see can't him thinking. He can't even do it. Such a great scene. Why, Matt, did you want to talk about this scene? I think that's the first question I need to ask. Well, it's a sort of a harmonic confluence of, of reasons. One of them is uh Robert De Niro, you know, we know that Robert De Niro was a great movie actor, <clears throat> but I would say that he is at his absolute best in silent close ups when he's thinking. Yes. And that's a skill that uh very few movie actors have to 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 rivet your attention when they're in close up and they're not saying anything and they're thinking and they can't tell you what they're thinking. You have to imagine what they're thinking. And it's a very difficult assignment. It's very subtle. And to me, it's the chest of a truly great movie actor if they can hold your attention in a close up where they're not saying anything. And and you and they and they're not giving you the information that you need in order to figure out exactly what's going through the character's mind. You have, they have to get you close enough, but they also have to be uh, subtle enough and open ended enough that they're not handing you stuff. Like they're not like they don't want to overdo it because then it just looks uh, cheesy and and unrealistic yeah. and 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 just not good. Like you want it to be expressive and suggestive but not go over the line to where you're telegraphing anything and being a bad actor. I mean, we've all seen this happen. We've all seen this happen where you get a close-up of a moment where somebody thinks an evil thought and they practically could be twirling a mustache, you know? (laughs) De Niro Niro doesn't do that. And this is on a short list of the great, you know, there there are probably a list, I could make a list of maybe 50 close-ups that I think about as often as I think about entire movies. De Niro would be probably five or six of those slots, and this would be one of those slots. And, you know, another one would be the moment in Goodfellas when um, 
he decides to whack everybody after the Lufthansa heist and, and sunshine of your love is playing and he's at the bar and smoking. the cameras and the cameras pulling in. Oh my the goodness. Gradually falling in towards him and you're seeing him run through various scenarios in his head. And there's a moment, I swear to God, where he, you see him look up kind of, he sort of looks up and like to screen left or screen right, like almost over his head, like there's a bad thought hovering over his head. And then he sees it and you see his whole face lights up and he laughs with the light. And it's like he's picturing killing one of these guys, probably, you know, but it's like it, it's incredible that like the control that this guy has over his face is unbelievable. And he does it in so many movies. And, you know, Taxi Driver is another example of that. Some of some of the, the moments in Taxi Driver that people still talk about, argue about are De Niro in close up, like that very final scene of the movie when he takes Sybil Shepard home in the cab. And it's like, you know, people still talk about that scene. Like, is it really happening? Is it a dream? Is he imagining it? Is it Travis's fantasy? Uh, What is it? And then he looks at himself in the rearview mirror and all you see are his eyes. And it's just a brief glance. And then he taps the mirror so that he doesn't have to look at himself. Why? Why does he look at himself? Why does he tap the mirror so he doesn't have to look at himself? You know, these these are moments in movies that invite questions they don't supply answers. And De Niro is really, really at peak De Niro when he's giving us fuel to ask questions about, about his character and about the psychological processes of his character and about the movie that the character is the star of. And he is another great example of that. And this is, you know, this is a movie where he tells you in that coffee shop scene, you know, uh, the 30 seconds flat rule, don't have anything in your life that you can't walk away from in 30 seconds flat. If you see the heat around the corner, he gets to say the title of the movie. That's, <laughs> that's how you know who this movie's really about. And <laughs> Sorry, he, he doesn't got... keep saying like, uh, that's a whole other discussion, by the way, whoever gets to say the title of the movie <laughs> is who the movie is really sympathizing with. That, that's that's just a theory. Of mine. That's and a that's great why, theory. That's a great well, theory. Notice the title of the movie is often put into the mouths of the bad guy. Yes, you know, yes. and like that, and like that—that's—that's that's something, right? Yes, uh, that tells me that like often these movies that are promulgating like a, kind of a law and order, all's well that ends well, sunny side up view of the world are are actually <laughs> bullshitting us. Yes. Am I allowed to curse? <laughs> yeah, you're allowed to curse, and okay. and and also you you know another one uh, which. We're talking about heat, so it's a movie that is so deeply influenced by heat, it's in, almost inseparable. It's like The Dark Knight. Jim Gordon gets yeah. to say the line. So this cop who's who can't, the you know, there's chaos surrounding him. Law is nothing. And he gets to sort of fantasize about what it's like for a vigilante to go around and punch people in the face and, uh, you know, hang psychopaths upside down from buildings and, uh, and give people the power yeah. to blow themselves up. So he's the guy. You know, he's the observer. Where Jim Gordon, as we're watching that movie, helplessly as these psychopaths and vigilantes run around Gotham City. Right, exactly, exactly. So, so you know, which brings us to Nero. And, like, you know, Neil, uh, Neil doesn't need to do what he does. He doesn't need, no. like, it doesn't make any sense. This is a guy who has prided himself on doing the, uh, the tough but necessary, unpl- often unpleasant, but rational thing time and time again throughout this movie. This is a guy who, you know, uh, you know, he aborts, he, he's willing to abort a heist if he senses that something's wrong. Like if his spidey sense starts to tingle, <laughs> he doesn't care if he's put six months into planning something. If it doesn't feel right, he'll walk away from it. This, he, hears this an, is, is, he hears an errant noise 
and errant noise, <laughs> and that's enough for six months to just go. See ya. That's yeah. enough. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And 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 you know, but he can't let go of his conditioning. He can't sure. let go of his conditioning. And Michael Mann's films are often about people who are unable to escape the traps of their own conditioning. This is something that he's very, very concerned with. And I would argue this is what makes him a truly interesting filmmaker in the, in the, in the uh, crime genre and the adventure genre. A lot of filmmakers who work in that genre don't, don't question the core of the material in the way that Michael Mann does. And his movies are often about um, these guys who are, you know, spouting these sort of vainglorious monologues about freedom from entanglements and the ability to go wherever you want, do whatever you want. But if you actually stand back and look at their lives, they're trapped. They're They're trapped. trapped. They can't go anywhere. They can't go, you know, they can't go where they want to go. They have to pretend to be somebody that they're not. They have to hide where their money comes from. If they get in a relationship with a woman, they they can't tell her what they do for a living or they hide it from her forever or they swear her to secrecy. And, you know, they're, they have legitimate businesses to hide their money that are, that are called fronts. They're false fronts, just <laughs> yes. like false fronts that they put up for the, in their personalities. You know, they have this face that they present to the world. That's not their real face. And it's like, that's not really freedom. It's not no. really freedom. And Michael Mann's movies are very aware of this irony. And, uh, you know, they're of two minds. Like on one hand, it is kind of cool to be able to have a shootout with the cops in, in broad daylight in Los Angeles, because uh, it's like a playground fantasy of like cops and robbers, you know. And uh, yeah, but in the end, like you know, when people get hit, they like Val Kilmer gets injured in that shootout, and he spends the rest of the movie in unbelievable pain. Yes, unbelievable pain, and trying to hide the physical pain that he's in. And and you know, all, everybody in this movie meets a terrible, terrible ending. In my, <laughs> I, I don't think anybody, I almost nobody gets a happy ending in this. Like no. even like Pacino. You know what? Pacino's ending isn't happy. No, you know, Diane Venora. Uh, there's already the fatalism of that. The relationship is over. You know that. No, the, it's like you know, it's like there's a mirror moment in this movie, the, the with the the moment in the tunnel, uh, which is Neil gets word. I think that uh, I, I'm sorry, Vincent gets word that Neil is. Um, on his way to the airport, I think. Yep. And he's in the hospital with his with his ste- his uh, stepdaughter who just uh, you know almost killed herself. Yep. And he bounds down those, those stairs. stairs. He yeah. bounds down those stairs like he is so excited. He he runs away from his family just like De Niro said that you have to be able to when he's laying out that you know that BS philosophy. If you've got to catch life. me, if you've got to move when I move then how do you yes. expect to hold together a marriage? And in that moment, Vincent's like, accepts that. He's like, yep, well, he throws I'm not it going away. He to. throws it away. He throws it away like he discards it like it's an empty bag of potato chips. <laughs> He's like everything. It's like everything that meant so much to him. It's like Neil's on his way to the airport. It's like, see you later. Woohoo! <laughs> At the beginning of this minute, I think you're so right about the... The, there's something really terrific and really self-aware about a great actor who knows that they just can think in front of a lens and they don't have to say a word and things happen. And I think that one of the things that John Voight's Nate does at the beginning of this scene, which sort of kicks off this great internalized sensational close-up moment, and there's the great contrast because you've got Edie there as Amy Brenneman who, who's looking hopeful and positive and just is completely unaware of what's really, really going on with Neil. But 
you get that sense and there's this sort of great fraternal connection between John Voight and De Niro here as Nate and Neil that when he gives him that information, he knows that he needs to give him the information, but I feel like Nate, even before De Niro makes the decision, says, I don't know if this guy is going to be able to overcome his programming, to use your word. Right. I don't, well, yes. He's, yes. He, he gives fact, him the info and we just know that I may have handed him a grenade, a live grenade well, here. Think about, think about what's going through Nate's mind prior to that phone call. Yes. Nate is having his own moment in the tunnel. Yes. At that moment. He's having his own moment of the tunnel. We're not privy to it, but it definitely happened because he ends up in the same place that De Niro ends up. You know, Nate has this moment where it's like, all right, my conditioning, my code, my adherence to the criminal protocol tells me that I'm required to call Neil and tell him that the rat is in a hotel room near the very airport that he's headed (laughs) to. I have to do this. You know, it's required. It's required. You have to do it. It's like one of those things where like if you find out there's a rat in your organization, you have to kill them. Yes. You know, it's one of those things. And and he knows that he has to do it. You know, and H.A.S. in quote marks has to do it. Yes. He has to do it. And he could decide not to do it. And it would save the life of Neil, who, by the way, I kind of find it interesting that, you know, his relationship with Neil seems very similar to um, uh, Frank and Thief, his relationship with the Willie Nelson character. And yes. they even have both have long hair. And, and they're, but, but, well, they're both, I think Michael Mann talked about Eddie, um, Eddie Bunker. Um, yeah. He wrote a, 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 what, which is a phenomenal, he wrote a phenomenal book called No Beast So Fierce, which is like a semi-autobiographical, you know, um, uh, yeah. uh, understanding of like what criminal life is like basically he's like the proto Nate you know and and even at the time yeah. John Voight was John Voight even said to Michael Mann he's like why don't you just get the guy Eddie Bunker <laughs> to be the right. guy that's in this movie um, and Michael Mann said something sweet he's like because we wouldn't get to work together so he, right, right. he like wanted he wanted whatever John Voight had um, that energy and that presence, and he wanted to sort of make him in that mold, this Nate mold, this really conflicted, weird, again, same, you know, having to dance to the same protocol, programming. Hold on a second, dude. My, I have three dogs, and they're all barking. <laughs> That's okay. That's fine. They're all barking. I'll my, this my, my, my dogs are, you know, they will go absolutely berserk. They, they can smell like a FedEx delivery or, or a mail carrier <laughs> from like four blocks away, but like, if if the actual Manson family came into our house in the middle of the night, they wouldn't even get out of bed. They're completely they're completely useless. These dogs, they, they're crazy. It's crazy. It's like the middle of the night. Like they, yeah, I swear to God, it could be like the entire orc army from Lord of the Rings coming out. <laughs> the dogs would be like, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, but yeah, but uh, yeah, that's that's clearly like there's certain motifs that that uh, Michael Mann. Uh, has always latched onto and that's part of what makes him a kind of classic auteur filmmaker His his preoccupations and obsessions keep getting revisited and, and repurposed and re and refashioned uh, time and time again. Um, but you know, but this, uh, this tunnel scene in many ways, I feel like it's the culmination of everything that his, his, his cinema is about. And his cinema is ultimately about not the, not the action you know, he's a great no. action filmmaker. But it's not about the action. It's not about the the shooting, the killing, the running, the driving and all that stuff, although that's always very well done and, and holds your attention. It's the decision to do it that he's really interested in. Yes. It's the decision. And the decision is often made 
without, you know, you know, they may debate it, they may discuss it, but in the end, the decision is made privately and internally. And he always makes sure that we're privy to that decision. And I'll give you another example of that. And last, the Mohicans, when, uh, when Jody May's character makes the decision to jump off of the cliff rather than marry Magua. Yes. You know, and Magua, and actually Magua what a has scene. a very what scene moment a scene. decision where he sees, you know, he has that moment where it's like, what am I going to do? Uh, I'm going to, you know, having just killed her, her, her boyfriend, <laughs> um, you know, Uncas, uh, am, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to extend my hand and he extends his hand. And that is a gesture that has no dialogue and her look, she looks at him, she looks back, she looks at him again, and then she steps off the ledge. No dialogue in that. You know, there's so many, almost all of the moments that get, that send chills down my spine in Michael Mann cinema are moments where you're looking at people's faces while they are thinking. <laughs> yes. While they're thinking. You know? And, and, and also, look at what's going on externally in this scene. It adds a lot. Like, the tunnel has a lot of associations. And, like, here we're going to get a, a bit psychoanalytical, I guess. But, you know, what do you see when you die? Supposedly, yeah. You see a a, a lit, a, a very well lit tunnel, <laughs> or a, a or a tunnel with a massive light at the end, with an illumination yes, it's at the end. White light, the blinding white light. So it's like this is a near death experience for Neil. Yes. him going into this tunnel of light. He passes through the tunnel of light. He had a moment when he could have avoided his own death. And when does he start to go through do the machinations? It's after he's gone through the tunnel. He missed his moment. He missed his moment. The moment the moment to contemplate this has passed. Yes. You know, the decision he didn't make this decision, the decision made him. It's very very sad. You know? It's yeah. very sad. It's tragic and because it, you know he can't ha- in here when he's wrestling and he's grizzling and you see again just such amazing command and understanding of his expressions that are going on in his mind right now and there's maddening glances going on in his face as we skip into the next minute is that we slide in there's just another just a, it's just a show of him wrestling through what's happening here. But you know that it's inevitable. And that's what's so well, sad. Also, you know, it's what- so sad about Edie as well. It's her face I feel like after they pass through the tunnel, Matt, when I look at Amy Brenneman's, she's got obviously is just stunning, classical, beautiful, fa- classically beautiful face. She's there and she looks the most hopeful as they go through the tunnel. And the moment that yeah. he whips that wheel, you watch like a grave expression come on her face too. Yes, yes, yes. Well, and she um, she doesn't know him well enough to be driving to the airport with him. That's the problem. <laughs> If she knew him, if she knew him just a little better, she wouldn't have gotten in that car. In you the first would never place. have gotten in that car. No way. She, she would know. She should know better. She should know better than to get in a car and drive to the airport with a guy like Neil. <laughs> you know, under the pretext that he's gonna, you know, he's gonna start a new life with her, and you know, uh, and again, going back to the tunnel, though, there's a secondary association with a tunnel, which is what is a synonym for myopia? Tunnel vision. Tunnel vision. Tunnel vision, which is a condition that afflicts almost every Michael Mann protagonist to one degree or another. <laughs> they're myopic. They're trapped in their own preconceptions. They can only look ahead, and what's behind them is behind them, and they're never going to consider it again. They're all about living for the moment. and But their inability to take a, you know the long view, to look at something that is not just what's right in front of them, but all around them, is what dooms them, and it's what dooms Neil. It's very, very sad. And and this, you know, this tunnel of light, this near-death experience, um, is the moment when it, it's the point of no return for Neil. 
everything that happens after that is the postscript. Like to me, the moment in the tunnel, the reason why I wanted to talk about it is this is the climax of the movie. <laughs> yeah. The climax of the movie is not him sneaking into the hotel and, you know, uh, stealing a staff uniform and killing Wayne Grow, running out into the field, shooting it out with Al Pacino and dying in the weeds. Though That's great stuff. That's really great filmmaking. But that's not the climax of the movie. The climax of the movie is him driving into this tunnel, having a moment when he could decide not to go to the airport and choosing to go to the airport. Yes, he has to. This is an action film. This is an action film. And like when, when we call Michael Mann an action filmmaker, we think of like the guns going off and things catching on fire and people falling into ravines and, you know, <laughs> tomahawks and whatever. But that's not the kind of action that is really special about Michael Mann. It's 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 the it's the decision. It's the it's the internal action of of going through your options and making a choice. And then there's this action, which is the decision. You know, a decision is an action. An action is a decision. And an action film can also be about people thinking and then doing stuff. Yes. And it doesn't always have to be this, you know, and I love action movies. Like action movies are my favorite kind of action, uh, my favorite kind of movies. Um, But uh, what makes Michael Mann's films a cut above other action cinema is that he cares about the thought processes and the and the lifelong psychological conditioning that went into those decisions. And and the question of free will, like, you know, how free are we really? <laughs> yes. If we're the product of all the, all the messages that we've uh, consumed and internalized and that define us, like, how free are we really? Like, all of these guys, they're, they're very, very sad. Like, people who love his movies, like, they, <laughs> they need to have a moment and ask ourselves, like, we need to look at ourselves and say, like, you love tragedy. Yes, we do. I can say that. I can we say we love tragedy. We yeah. love tragedy. Like these movies. Like it's like these movies are like they're only guy fantasies if you're not actually paying attention. Yeah. I mean, this is like it's ridiculous. Like these characters. Like these are characters who've been living like semi, semi secretive, like under the radar, off the grid lives for decades, and they've been lying about who they are. And they can't let anybody get too close to them. And like you look at the interiors of their apartments and they got like eight things in there. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's sad. It's very, very sad stuff. Like, you know, like I mean, the beach house is nice and the clothes are nice, but like in the end you die in a field of weeds at the airport. Yes. Yeah. And and or you whoever you're tethered to, like you just go to Chris, you you know, Chris is tethered to Charlene. And Charlene is keeping him in some state of normality, but he's just to be this crazy sociopath and like who can get in that reflexive like flow state and just unload an automatic weapon in the middle of the city. He's also like an addict, a gambling addict, a drunk. You know, he's he's he's, she's tethering him to some kind of normal life, and she's an enabler. She's yeah. She's an enabler. She's an enabler. That moment on the balcony, which is another great non-verbal moment of decision, where she. She makes one motion with her hand, one horizontal motion with her hand, bends her hand at the wrist so as not to alert the cops who were in that apartment back there. And the, 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 the sadness on his face, like had she invited him up there, he would have ended up in jail and he would have lived and he would have like, you know, I, it's just, oh, it's so sad. And he gets, so and, and, he, and he does legitimately get away 
but wh- there's no satisfaction in that escape. Yeah, but how is he, you know, how yeah. is that an escape? Yeah, it's yeah like, there's no escape. He just gets away. He's wounded. He has no family. All his friends are dead. He can't he live in that, LA that's anymore. He's so full of painkillers. I bet he can't even get to the end of a sentence by that point. Oh my God. He looks all swollen and gross and bloated and like, uh. you know, his, he just, he, 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 he's like, he's got to like put on a performance to, to make you think that he's a guy who can walk normally. Where's he going to go after that? <laughs> That's my question. Like, where's he going to go? You know, I mean, like, they're going to cut to him sitting at the bus station, like, gritting his teeth, trying not to cry from all the pain he's or ble- in. Or I mean, potentially bleed to death because he's probably still bleeding underneath, like, a, a sweatsuit. He probably still is. But, you know, uh, yeah, Charlene has that moment where her t- her moment in the tunnel is is standing on that balcony. Yeah. You know, and she does, you know... She does uh, what uh, she's been conditioned to do as a result of being with him for so long, which is uh, she alerts him. Like, it's the same thing as, like, the phone call to Neil in the tunnel. Yes. You know, everybody's doing the thing that they've been sort of uh, constructed to do in this. I mean, does anybody in this movie make a decision other than the one that, that, that you would expect them to make? You know, does anybody escape their conditioning in this movie? I, I'm not coming up with anyone, really. No. The only one that's kind of got a strange and unpredictable conditioning, but he's probably his unpredictability is predictable because he's a survivor. So he'll just do anything to survive or p- throw anyone under the bus. is like Wayne Grow. So, like, yeah, he, Wayne- he's, he's got like a survivor. <laughs> Person, the freest person was the freest person is, is a psycho. It, it literally is like really a sad. It, it's, it's terrible to even say it because he's like the psychopath. Who's a, who's he's a, also a serial he's murderer? The worst character in the entire movie, probably. <laughs> he is, but he does have some freedom. Outside he does of... have some freedom. He does have some freedom. Well, he's not encumbered by any code. He only cares about what's best for Wayne Grow. Exactly. And he's probably one of those guys who talks about himself in the third person too. <laughs> we didn't he see enough. He's got to do what's best for Wayne Grow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's worse, psychopath or talking about yourself in the third person. But um, we'll we, we can we can, we can talk. Um, when I'm just I'm, I'm just uh, there's also some great moments of um, just to sort of reinforce your point about this you know this myopic vision and and this control is I've just. Um, people would have already listened to a couple of moments I recorded with the film director Joe Lynch talking about the the great moments in the heist scene where you watch these guys react to the action, so to speak. So they're like, there's like fleeting seconds. And I mentioned one just before where Chris Val Kilmer's character, he like, he sees uh, Michael T. Williamson and um, Wes studio play Casals and Drucker. And he sees them. And there's about, uh, I think uh, by, uh, by Joe's count, there was 18 frames between him seeing them and firing. He just lets loose. Like that's his instant reaction. And then there's a manual, moment later where neil's in the car it's only like about 60 seconds after this happening when neil sees the police blockade and they slow down time and you watch the machinations but it's just it's they're slowing it down just so you get a brief glimpse at it but you show how quick he is as reflexively as well it would have only been about 18 frames if they didn't slow it down before he picks the gun up and shoots straight through right um there so this like what i think in contrast to this moment which i think is really interesting is in those moments, it's reflex of survival and they've got to do it. And in this moment, wrestling over, I could get away from this. I could, mm. I, I'm home free. 
the wrestle to like really exactly what you said is like to death. Like I know that I'm going to my death right this this moment. Yes. That's that that takes an agonizing you know forty seconds or something. Like it's not eighteen frames of reflex. Are you choose life? It it's yeah, and he and he won't choose life in this moment. He doesn't. He no, ha- nobody in this movie chooses life. They all choose death <laughs> in one way or another. They all choose death, and it's it, again, it's a, that's a, that's what makes it a tragedy. It's a very exciting, uh, clever, beautifully uh, uh, filmed uh, uh, tragedy. You know, this whole thing. It's like it could be an opera. I'm surprised nobody's made nobody's made an opera out of this yet. Well, I'll give it, it time. Give, give it time. That that could be the spin off of yeah. Give It Time. You know, I mean, but then it would be superfluous because that's what we've already got with this movie. But yeah, but you know, that's the tunnel moment. And then, you know, that's this is a movie that's filled with tunnel moments, like big ones and small ones, and some of them are you know, the moment where McKelty Williamson's character uh, decides to leave the kitchen and go b- get back into his old line of work is a tunnel moment. Yeah, Dennis yeah, um, uh, Don Braden, the character Dennis Haysbert there in the kitchen when he gets propositioned. His tunnel moment yeah. is about the same amount of time as being in this tunnel. It's about ten seconds, and Neil is blasting him with his eyes. You know, one, one, you know, one answer, yes or no, right now. And he's there, and we watch him have that moment before he has to make the decision to throw his life away. And it's well, just... it's a, it's an amazing series of you know the movie is an amazing series of moments where people's lives could go one way or the other. Yes, where they could, and and ultimately, it often comes down to you can live or die, or you could be free, or you could be in jail. And uh, they consistently make, you know, I don't know if it's the wrong choice. I mean, you know, if if they are who they are and this is the only way they know how to be and they're going to be desperately unhappy if they're not robbing banks or if they're in jail or something, then maybe it is the right decision. You know, maybe it is the right decision. <laughs> but they didn't have anyone rationally have that conversation or perhaps they could never hear that rational conversation. That's what's so romantic and tragic, capital R romantic and tragic about Michael Mann characters is that they just will consistently be themselves regardless of what the impact is. Oh, completely, completely. Well, and also, you know, when you think about the difference between Neil and, and, and Vincent, uh, Vincent's a talker, you know, Vincent probably has, I don't know he always, he probably has 10 times as much dialogue as Neil in this movie. And he is a guy who has devoted some time to thinking about himself. And he, he talks things out with his wife and he talks things out with his coworkers. And, and, you know, he, he's a hyper verbal person. He's probably done a lot of reading. He just seems like Al Pacino in real life almost, except, <laughs> yeah. he, you know, except he has a badge and a gun. And like, if you ever read interviews with Al Pacino, he sounds like Vincent. Yes. He basically sounds Vincent like it's not much of a stretch that he would play this particular guy it, it comes so naturally to him but but you know there's a the question of does he is he does he really ultimately have any more insight into himself than Neil you know does all of that talking and all of that contemplation has that gotten him any to any deeper towards an understanding of the mechanisms that drive his own decisions than Neil I don't think so no because I don't think so. I don't because see, I don't think he, I don't, I don't think, think he understands the satisfaction. I think there's like a realm of satisfaction in Vincent's motivation, because there's like the thrill of the chase and then catching someone. But when he's contending with someone who he feels is his equal, I don't think he's even prepared for that. So all the talking and all the everything. Once you find like the biggest fish, you know, once you find the white whale, and that's like his Neil. Like it, once you find yeah. that, like it just drives him like. You know that it's only going to end badly because when he catches him, what's what is left to do? Then he actually has to face. That's what 
so amazing in that non-verbal moment, that climax of the film, which I won't talk too much about because I can't, I can't sort of spoil the discussion. But that's a moment where he has to be faced with his decisions. He has to he has did to bear just, the brunt. You just, did you just avoid a heat spoiler? <laughs> no, I mean spoil the talking about uh, talking about oh, it in an episode early. I think I think everyone listening to this podcast has probably seen heat. <laughs> yeah, well, let's hope to God they have. If there's some person who hasn't and they're following along one minute at a time, you are as disciplined as anyone in Neil's crew. You're amazing. <laughs> You're amazing to not have jumped ahead and just watched the film. But no, I just mean that, you know, in that that final moment, he he bears the brunt of all these bad decisions. I feel like he's the he's standing there and as that, you know, again, a terrific nonverbal performance, my, my, one of my favorite close-ups in this whole movie is like bearing the brunt of all this destiny, all this programming everything and once you're there it's like what's left what's left in his life yeah what's left yeah and he also you know vincent vincent killed the only person who truly understand him yes it's a very sad very sad movie you're making me cry here like <laughs> if you cry over here <laughs> if if that's yeah. if that if that was a goal that i had at the beginning of the show i didn't know that i was <laughs> i was trying to make Matt all cry well, no it's well it's an interesting you know it's an interesting uh the the podcast is a one of the reasons why i enjoy it so much is it reminds me of this thing that Roger Ebert used to do called cinema interruptus yes are you familiar with this yeah he, and he would do it live is that right he would do it at a um a, yeah he'd show a movie and then, you know he would block off an entire afternoon and he'd show a movie and anybody who wanted to could call out stop and make an observation or ask a question. And in fact, I was going to take over this a few years ago, the university of Colorado at Boulder asked me to take over. And I ended up withdrawing from the event because there were some labor disputes happening at the university. Uh, and I felt like I would be endorsing management if I appeared at this thing. So I, so I withdrew. However, the, the, the I, I was going to start cinema interrupt us again. And the movie that I was going to do was heat. I was going to do Heat, and we were going to spend, you know, we were going to watch Heat all the way through, and then we were going to come back the next day and watch Heat again, and, and like two, it was going to be over like three nights or something, and I was going to have like supplementary video there, and like you know, like I was going to have Jean Pierre Melville films, and and you know, uh, you know, Cagney gangster movies, and. Uh, Akira Kurosawa and like anything you probably talked about a lot of this stuff on the show, but all I have this list of all of these things that were in some way influential on heat or that were in that heat influenced ultimately. And I was going to have like somebody there with a laptop who had all these clips. And if anybody brought it up, you know, we could put it up on screen and it was going to be this crazy multimedia thing. And maybe at some point I'll still do it. But and if you do, if you do, I need you to just send me a, 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 a DM on Twitter and say, Blake, yes. this is happening at this date because I'll do anything to be in that crowd. I'll do anything oh to God. be in that well, crowd. It's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a, an epic. It's going to be an epic uh, worthy of Michael Mann. Uh, yeah, no, it's a, but you know, one of these days, hopefully I'll, I'll still get to do that. But Heat was the movie I was going to choose because I really do think it rewards that kind of, that kind of scrutiny. And, um, even Michael Mann, I think, seems to understand that this is the big one. Yes. This is the, this is the first line in the obituary. And I think he's made a number of films that I consider to be pretty much perfect for the kind of film that they are. Uh, but this one, there's something else about this one. And I don't even think this is his most perfect film. I, you know, I, I don't think it's like, I think his most perfect films are probably Manhunter, Thief, or Last of the Mohicans. Like, this movie is a big, sprawling film. 
There are parts of it that I think are maybe not as well developed. You kind of have to take his word for things sometimes. Like yes. all the whole Dennis Haysbert plot line feels a little shoehorned in to me. But but in the end, like it doesn't matter because as Pauline Kael said, great movies are rarely perfect movies. And I think Heat, I guess I have to say, you know, I think Heat is probably his greatest film um, because it is the repository of everything that Michael Mann is about, like visually and thematically, including the relationships with men and women, which I think is what really makes it special. Like there's so many movies out there that are about bank robbers and the cops trying to catch them. But the fact that there's only like, if you actually put a stopwatch on it, as I'm sure you have, <laughs> there's, I don't think there's actually that much violence in this movie. No, there's not. So how much is, what is there like 20 so minutes the, or something? Yeah. Like if you look at the beginning, the, the opening heist, when the heist is actually underway is about five minutes. The, mm-hmm. the, the middle heist is only nine minutes and there are a couple right. of other bursts. So really when you're talking in a 170 minute film, it's less than 20 minutes of like significant violent moments. Whereas yeah. there's a whole centerpiece, I, I call it like the emotional spine of the movie, where there's a whole stack of different interactions between men and women and conversations that are unfolding, whether it's Neil and Edie, whether it's Charlene and Chris, whether it's, you know, there's obviously a, a very sinister conversation that happens with Wayne Grow and a young prostitute, Justine and Vincent, and it's all, and, and then Don Breeden and Lillian. And there's that emotional center is like a whole bunch of people sort of articulating their programming and what they're trying to do to overcome it and have better lives and just live happily, find some semblance of balance. And that takes equally or more time in the grand scheme of the movie than any violence. And Michael, I mean, it's amazing to me that like it's basically like he took. It's like shortcuts, but he put machine guns in it. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like... It's a, put it's that a Los on Angeles the poster, movie. you it's... cowards. Shortcuts with machine guns, for God's sake. <laughs> well, I called it in, in the video essay series Zen Pulp that I did, I called it Magnolia with Gunplay. Oh, that, yes. That, that's very But apt. it's definitely part of that tradition. And it's like, it's also part of like, you know, there was a tradition in 60s and early 70s cinema of these kind of, uh, relationship movies that were shot like epics. Yes. You know, like movies like Stanley Dunn's Two for the Road uh, was a good example of that. And and uh, uh, there was a John Frank, a couple of John Frankenheimer movies that, that I think Michael Mann has probably seen, like uh, Grand Prix, which yes. is also a three-hour film. And there's, you know, there's racing in it, but there's also a lot of scenes where it's just men and women talking about their problems. Yes, you know, and and that's what the kind of movie that this is. And I also think it's a reason why this movie has an audience uh, that is that goes beyond uh, the action cinema audience. Like this is one of these movies where just in the same way that like people who don't normally like gangster movies have seen The Godfather. Yes. You know, there, there's something else going on in it besides, you know, you have all the things that you want when you go to a movie like that. But you also have all of these things that you didn't expect. And that's what ultimately makes it a special movie. And the fact that, like, you know, it's like the Godzilla formula. Like, in, in all of the really great Godzilla films, Godzilla's barely in it. Yes. You know? And, like, this movie, this is a movie you say, like, what's the movie about? It's like, oh, it's cops and robbers. It's like, yeah, sort of. Yeah. Sort of. Well, I mean, people, people, like, people are like. It's of anything that could be construed as action in the, in the sort of genre sense. And the rest of it is people going, where were you? You know? <laughs> where were you? Why did you just Don't rage reverse stay it? up all night. Yeah. You know where where are we going? Why aren't there enough? Yeah. Why is it? Why, why aren't there enough bundles of money in our freezer from this heist? The risk isn't worth the reward. 
Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and they're all just, you know, they're all waiting. They're all waiting. They're all waiting for uh, their luck to run out, ultimately. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, look, ladies and gentlemen, that that is why Matt Zolazite's had to be on this show. And this uh, revelations of tunnel moments and also my favorite, maybe one of my favorite quotes that has come up in the entirety of this show, it's shortcuts with machine guns. Um, <laughs> could, 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 I mean, it, 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 uh, there's going to be a meme of this when I publish the episode. Matt, thank you so much. I, um, you were talking about nearly making you cry, talking about all these tragic, uh, these tragic figures. But for you to say the great one, Mr. Roger Ebert's name and say it reminds me of something that Roger used to do almost destroyed me emotionally inside and made me sore at the same time. So thank you for such a profoundly um, like un, un, undeserving compliment. Um, as oh, part no, of- I, think it's, I think it's very deserved. And I think, you know, to me, the, the thing of it is like fandom, people put down the idea of fandom. Um, and sometimes, you know, uh, improperly practiced fandom can be kind of a, a destructive, bad, negative thing. But, but the best kind of fandom is the kind where you treat the, the, you know, the object itself, whether it's a movie, a record album, a television show, you name it, it's an entry point into something else. And like, you've sort of like treated this movie, like it's a door in a dream, that you open up and you walk through it and there's this whole other world on the other side of the door. Like heat is just an excuse for you to work through all of your issues. Man. <laughs> and that's totally legitimate. And that's what, you know, that's, that's it, to me, that's the real reason why people become, you know, critics, historians, filmmakers, everything else. And like, you know, heat, you know, if this is Moby Dick, you know, heat is your white whale. It is. It is. <laughs> Well, ladies just don't get tangled up in the rope. That's all I no, can say. No, I'm staying away from the rope, and I'm I'm just gonna ignore Nate's phone call. I'm just gonna say, Skip, sorry, I can't do the iPhone. Sorry, I can't answer right now. I'm just I'm gonna exactly. have my let it go straight to voicemail. Straight to voicemail for Nate, ladies and gents. This has been uh, another episode of One Heat Minute. I couldn't be happier with it. Matt Zolazites, thank you so much for your time once again, guys. You've got to get out there. I've already pre-ordered because at the time I'm we're recording this, it's December. You guys are going to hear it a little bit later, um, uh, early 2019. Soprano Sessions. I can uh, be an advocate for. I love the Oliver Stone experience. Um, TV, the book, because it ranks appropriately Deadwood as one of the greatest television shows of all time. Um, and Soprano Sessions, I just can't wait to voraciously read. Matt, you've been amazing. Thank you so much. And guys, Thank if you, you want to keep listening, um, oneheatminute.com, you can subscribe all over the place. But uh, we'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. And remember, Nate's calls go to voicemail.